Chapter Ten of the Italian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Morant. The Italian by Anne Radcliffe. Chapter Ten. What wouldst thou have a serpent sting thee twice? Shakespeare. The Marchesa alarmed at some hints dropped by vivaldi in the late interview between them and by some circumstances of his latter conduct summoned her constant adviser skidoni still suffering with the insult he had received in the church of the spirito santo he obeyed with sullen reluctance yet not without a malicious hope of discovering some opportunity for retaliation that insult which had pointed forth his hypocrisy and ridiculed the solemn abstraction he assumed, had sunk deep in his heart, and, fermenting the direst passions of his nature, he meditated a terrible revenge. It had subjected him to mortifications of various kinds. Ambition, it has already appeared, was one of his strongest motives of action, and he had long since assumed a character of severe sanctity, chiefly for the purposes of lifting him to promotion. He was not beloved in the society of which he was a member, and many of the brotherhood, who had labored to disappoint his views, and to detect his errors, who hated him for his pride, and envied him for his reputed sanctity, now gloried in the mortification he had received, and endeavored to turn the circumstance to their own advantage. They had not scrupled already to display by insinuation and pointed sneers their triumph, and to menace his reputation and Scidoni, though he deserved contempt, was not of a temper to endure it. But above all, some hints respecting his past life, which had fallen from Vivaldi, and which occasioned him so abruptly to leave the church, alarmed him. So much terror, indeed, had they excited, that it is not improbable that he would have sealed his secret in death, devoting Vivaldi to the grave, had he not been restrained by the dreaded vengeance of the Vivaldi family. Since that hour he had known no peace, and had never slept. He had taken scarcely any food, and was almost continually on his knees upon the steps of the high altar. The devotees who beheld him paused and admired. Such of the brothers as disliked him sneered and passed on. Skidoni appeared alike insensible to each, lost to this world, and preparing for a higher. The torments of his mind and the severe penance he had observed had produced a surprising change in his appearance, so that he resembled a spectre rather than a human being. His visage was wan and wasted, his eyes were sunk and become nearly motionless, and his whole air and attitudes exhibited the wild energy of something, not of this earth. When he was summoned by the Marchesa, his conscience whispered this to be the consequence of circumstances which Vivaldi had revealed, and at first he had determined not to attend her. But, considering that, if it was so, his refusal would confirm suspicion, he resolved to trust once more to the subtlety of his address for deliverance. With these apprehensions, tempered by this hope, he entered the Marchesa's closet. She almost started on observing him, and could not immediately withdraw her eyes from his altered visage, which while Scidoni was unable wholly to conceal the perturbation which such earnest observation occasioned. "'Peace rest with you, daughter,' said he, and he seated himself without lifting his eyes from the floor. 
I wished to speak with you, father, upon affairs a moment, said the Marchesa gravely, which are probably not unknown to you. She paused, and Scadoni bowed his head, awaiting in anxious expectation what was to follow. You are silent, father, resumed the Marchesa. What am I to understand by this? That you have been misinformed, replied Scadoni, whose apt conscience betrayed his discretion. Pardon me, said the Marchesa. I am too well informed, and should not have requested your visit if any doubt had remained upon my mind. Signora, be cautious of what you credit, said the confessor imprudently. You know not the consequence of a hasty credulity. Would that mine were a rash credulity, replied the Marchesa, but we are betrayed. We, repeated the monk, beginning to revive. What has happened? The Marchesa informed him of Vivaldi's absence, and inferred from its length, for it was now several days since his departure, that he had certainly discovered the place of Elena's confinement, as well as the authors of it. Scadoni differed from her, but hinted that the obedience of youth was hopeless, unless severer measures were adopted. Severer! exclaimed the Marchesa. Good father, is it not severe enough to confine her for life? I mean severer with respect to your son, lady, replied Scadoni. When a young man has so far overcome all reverence for a holy ordinance as publicly to insult its professors, and yet more when that professor is in the very performance of his duties, it is time he should be controlled with a strong hand. I am not in the practice of advising such measures, but the conduct of Signor Vivaldi is such as calls aloud for them. Public decency demands it. For myself, indeed, I should have endured patiently the indignity which has been offered me, receiving it as a salutatory mortification, as one of those inflictions that purify the soul from the pride which even the holiest men may unconsciously cherish. But I am no longer permitted to consider myself. The public good requires that an example should be made of the horrible impiety of which your son, it grieves me, daughter, to disclose it, your son, unworthy of such a mother, has been guilty." It is evidence that in the style, at least, of this accusation, Scadoni suffered the force of his resentment to prevail over the usual subtlety of his address, the deep and smooth insinuation of his policy. "'To what do you allude, righteous father?' inquired the astonished Marchesa. "'What indignity, what impiety has my son to answer for? I entreat you will speak explicitly that I may prove I can lose the mother in the strict severity of the judge.' That is spoken with the grandeur of sentiment, which has always distinguished you, my daughter. Strong minds perceive that justice is the highest of the moral attributes. Mercy is only the favorite of weak ones. Scadoni had a view in this commendation beyond that of confirming the Marchesa's present resolution against Vivaldi. He wished to prepare her for measures, which might hereafter be necessary to accomplish the revenge he meditated, and he knew that by flattering her vanity— he was most likely to succeed. He praised her, therefore, for qualities he wished her to possess, encouraged her to reject general opinions by admiring, as the symptoms of a superior understanding, the convenient morality upon which she had occasionally acted, and calling sternness justice, extolled that for strength of mind, which was only callous ins insensibility. He then described to her Vivaldi's late conduct in the church of the Spirito Santo, exaggerated some offensive circumstances of it, invented others, 
and formed of the whole an instance of monstrous impiety and unprovoked insult. The Marchesa listened to the relation with no less indignation than surprise, and her readiness to adopt the confessor's advice allowed him to depart with renovated spirits and most triumphant hopes. Meanwhile the Marchess remained ignorant of the subject of the conference with Scadoni. His opinions had formerly been sounded, and having been found decidedly against the dark policy, it was thought expedient to practice, he was never afterwards consulted respecting Vivaldi. Parental anxiety and affection began to revive as the lengthened absence of his son was observed. Though jealous of his rank, he loved Vivaldi, and, though he had never positively believed that he designed to enter into a sacred engagement with a person whom the Marchesta considered to be so much his inferior as Elena, he had suffered doubts, which gave him considerable uneasiness. The present extraordinary absence of Vivaldi renewed his alarm. He apprehended that if she was discovered at this moment, when the fear of losing her forever and the exasperation which such complicated opposition occasioned had awakened all the passions of his son, this rash young man might be prevailed upon to secure her for his own by the indissoluble vow. On the other hand, he dreaded the effect of Vivaldi's despair, should he fail in the pursuit, and thus, fearing at one moment that for which he wished in the next, the Marchese suffered a tumult of mind inferior only to his son's. The instructions which he delivered to the servants whom he sent in pursuit of Vivaldi were given under such distraction of thought that scarcely any person perfectly understood his commission, and, as the Marchesa had been careful to conceal from him her knowledge of Elena's abode, he gave no direction concerning the route to San Stefano. While the Marchesa at Naples was thus employed, and while Scadoni was forming further plans against Elena, Vivaldi was wandering from village to village and from town to town in pursuit of her, whom all his efforts had hitherto been unsuccessful to recover. From the people at the post-house at Braselli, he had obtained little information that could direct him. They only knew that a carriage, such had been already described to Vivaldi, with the blinds drawn up, changed horses there on the morning, which he remembered to be that of Elena's departure, and had proceeded on the road to Morgagni. When Vivaldi arrived thither, all trace of Elena was lost. The master of the post could not recollect a single circumstance connected with the travellers, and even if he had noticed them, it would have been insufficient for Vivaldi's purpose, unless he had also observed the road they followed, for at this place several roads branched off into opposite quarters of the country. Vivaldi, therefore, was reduced to choose one of these, as chance or fancy directed, and as it appeared probable that the Marchesa had conveyed Elena to a convent, he determined to make enquiries at every one on his way. He had now passed over some of the wildest tracts of the Apennine, among scenes which seemed abandoned by civilized society to the banditti who haunted their recesses. Yet even here amidst wilds that were nearly inaccessible, convents with each its small dependent hamlet were scattered and shrouded from the world by woods and mountains, enjoyed unsuspectedly many of its luxuries, and displayed unnoticed some of its elegance. Vivaldi, who had visited several of these in search of Elena, had been surprised at the refined courtesy and hospitality with which he was received. It was on the seventh day of his journey and near sunset that he was bewildered in the woods of Ruggieri. He had received a direction for the road he was to take at a village some leagues distant, and had obeyed it confidently till now, when the path was lost in several tracks that branched out among the trees. 
The day was closing, and Vivaldi's spirits began to fail. But Paolo, light of heart and ever gay, commended the shade and pleasant freshness of the woods, and observed that if his master did lose his way, and was obliged to remain here for the night, it could not be so very unlucky, for they could climb up among the branches of a chestnut, and find a more neat and airy lodging than any inn had yet afforded them. While Paolo was thus endeavouring to make the best of what might happen, and his master was sunk in reverie, they suddenly heard the sound of instruments and voices from a distance. The gloom which the trees threw around prevented their distinguishing objects afar off, and not a single human being was visible, nor any trace of his art beneath the shadowy scene. They listened to ascertain from what direction the sounds approached, and heard a chorus of voices accompanied by a few instruments performing the evening service. "'We are near a convent, signor,' said Paolo. "'Listen, they are at their devotions.' "'It is as you say,' replied Vivaldi, "'and we will make the best of our way towards it. "'Well, signor, I must say, "'if we find as good doings here as we had at the Capuchins, "'we shall have no reason to regret our beds al fresco "'among the chestnut branches.' "'Do you perceive any walls or spires beyond the trees?' said Vivaldi, as he led the way. "'None, signor,' replied Paolo. "'Yet we draw nearer the sounds. "'Ah, signor, do you hear that note? "'How it dies away! "'And those instruments just touched in symphony. "'This is not the music of peasants. "'A convent must be near, though we do not see it.' "'Still, as they advanced, no walls appeared, "'and soon after the music ceased.' but other sounds led Vivaldi forward to a pleasant part of the woods, where the trees opening he perceived a party of pilgrims seated on the grass. They were laughing and conversing with much gaiety, as each spread before him the supper, which he drew from his scrip, while he, who appeared to be the father-director of the pilgrimage, sat with a jovial countenance in the midst of the company, dispensing jokes and merry stories, and receiving in return a tribute from every scrip. Wines of various sorts were ranged before him, of which he drank abundantly, and seemed not to refuse any dainty that was offered. Vivaldi, whose apprehensions were now quieted, stopped to observe the group, as the evening rays, glancing along the skirts of the wood, threw a gleam upon their various countenances, shewing, however, in such a spirit of gaiety that might have characterized the individuals of a party of pleasure, rather than those of a pilgrimage. The father-director and his flock seemed perfectly to understand each other. The superior willingly resigned the solemn austerity of his office, and permitted the company to make themselves as happy as possible, in consideration of receiving plenty of the most delicate of their viands. Yet somewhat of dignity was mingled with his condescension that compelled them to receive even his jokes with a degree of deference, and perhaps they laughed at them less for their spirit than because they were favors. Addressing the superior, Vivaldi requested to be directed how he might regain his way. The father examined him for a moment before he replied, but observing the elegance of his dress, and a certain air of distinction, and perceiving also that Paolo was his servant, he promised his services and invited him to take a seat at his right hand, and partake of the supper. Vivaldi, understanding that the party was going his road, accepted the invitation, when Paolo, having fastened the horses to a tree, soon became busy with the supper. While Vivaldi conversed with the father, Paolo engrossed all the attention of the pilgrims near him. They declared he was the cleverest and the merriest fellow they had ever seen, and often expressed a wish that he was going as far with them as to the shrine in a convent of Carmelites, which terminated with their pilgrimage. When Vivaldi understood that this shrine was in the church of a convent, partly inhabited by nuns, and that it was little more than a league and a half distant, he determined to accompany them, 
for it was as possible that Elena was confined there as in any other cloister, and of her being imprisoned in some convent he had less doubt the more he considered the character and views of his mother. He set forward, therefore, with the pilgrims and on foot, having resigned his horse to the weary father-director. Darkness closed over them long before they reached the village where they designed to pass the night, but they beguiled the way with songs and stories, now and then only stopping at the command of the father, to repeat some prayer or sing a hymn. But as they drew near a village, at the base of the mountains on which the shrine stood, they halted to arrange themselves in procession, and the superior, having stopped short in the midst of one of his best jokes, dismounted Visbaldi's horse, placing himself at their head, and beginning a loud strain, they proceeded in full chorus of melancholy music. The peasants, hearing their sonorous voices, came forth to meet and conduct them to their cabins. The village was already crowded with devotees, but these poor peasants, looking up to them with love and reverence, made every possible contrivance to accommodate all who came, notwithstanding which, when Paolo soon after turned into his bed of straw, he had more reasons than one to regret his chestnut mattress. Vivaldi passed an anxious night, waiting impatiently for the dawning of that day, which might possibly restore him to Elena. Considering that a pilgrim's habit would not only conceal him from suspicion, but allow him opportunities for observation, which his own dress would not permit, he employed Paolo to provide him one. The address of the servant, assisted by a single ducat, easily procured it, and at an early hour he set forward on his enquiry. End chapter 10 Recording by Liz Morant Liz Morant at gmail.com